0: All right, we are live and welcome again to another episode of the Edlow podcast. And I am here with two scholarly powerhouses when it comes to uh, Mormon studies. So the gates of hell will not prevail against us in this podcast. We will have no, no connectivity issues. We resolved all, all issues of mics and things. But I have Patrick Mason and Matthew Harris here. Hello, Patrick and Matthew. How are you? Good. Hey, Josh. Hey, Josh. So, so I've had both of you guys on in podcast, and I can tell you that these podcasts, particularly, especially among the listeners, I have a very diverse uh, group of listeners, but um, both members of the, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and even some who are not, are very interested in your guys' podcasts, Um for, for different reasons. Um, the, the one I had with Patrick really dealt, even though we talked about it in a, in scholarship, um, we talked about faith crisis and some of the issues facing the church. And then Matt, we talked with you about the books you've written particularly about race and the priesthood. And then also about Ezra Taft Benson and the political beliefs, uh, that, that he brought in and, uh, quite a diverse response as well <laughs> to, to both all of the podcasts we've done. So I'm really glad that we got you both on here because I really want to talk with both of you about a few different topics, uh, particularly about what you guys do versus what someone might read and say a Desiree book. Um, But before we go into that, you know, I want to ask you both, you know, you you guys have kind of devoted at least a, a large portion of your lives to the study and this uh, dissemination of information about Mormon history—why is that? Do you think so important for people to understand and read, Patrick? You can go I, first.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, well, for me, I mean, I was I was bit with the bit by the history bug pretty early on in in my life as as an undergraduate, and I knew I wanted to go on and, and be a historian, but I did not. Uh, I had no plans of studying Mormonism uh, as, as my main area of focus. Um, if you would have asked me both as an undergraduate or in the early years of graduate school, are you going to spend your life dedicated to, to studying Mormonism and dis- disseminating information about it? I would have said, what? No. Uh, it, was, it was a bit of an accident. And I won't tell the whole story, but, but I do think it's important. I mean, I, I'm, I'm totally dedicated to the study of history because I think it helps us reflect on what it means to be human. Uh, there's lots of other ways to do that. And there's lots of other really good and valuable things to do with your life. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't trust that to fly on a plane that's built by historians. Uh, and, and, and so, uh, so but, but, but I think history is is a great way for us to reflect on just simply this, this human condition that we share, uh, to have a window onto past lives, uh, to, to try to understand what, what happened and, and then to reflect on what that means for us in the present. Uh, Now, because of a series of of sort of unplanned events, I've ended up uh, spending my life, or at least my professional life, focusing on Mormonism. And and for me, it's really two things. One, I just find it inherently and endlessly fascinating. Um, And uh, I think Mormonism, uh, I, I always say and I tell my students, like Mormonism is just a really fun sandbox to play in. Uh, and, and it allows me to ask and, and get at lots of big questions that I'm interested in. I mean, I was trained fi- primarily as an American historian, and, and so that's mostly what I work on. So Mormonism is it's just a lot of fun. Um, but of course, I'm, I'm also um, you know, still very much an active member of, of the church. And so, so then the history um, that I do in my day job uh then when i come home at night or or on sundays then then it gives me opportunities to reflect on it uh in in a different way uh oftentimes theologically um and so so then it has a a separate set of meanings for me but but mostly i i just think it's really interesting and and i think it is again it's it's useful for us to to connect with these past lives
0: yeah i agree matt how about you
2: yeah i uh i echo a lot of what you just said patrick when i was at byu I, I did a bachelor's and a master's there and i remember when i was a graduate student a couple of my faculty mentors approached me and they said don't do mormon history it's like quicksand. <laughs> if you get in you'll never get out and, and that was you know the, the the funny comment the other real comment was you'll never get a job and this was this was in the 1990s before there was a flowering of Mormon history. There's a lot of academic presses now, as Patrick knows, that publishes Mormon stuff. But back then, there was really just the University of Illinois Press and and kind of the University of Utah Press. But now, there's several other academic presses publishing on Mormon Studies. But anyway, it was probably good advice at the time, and I I listened to them very carefully. And I did my training in American history, um, specializing in early America. And then about Oh, 12 years ago, I guess I discovered the sandbox that Patrick referred to. And I jumped in it. I thought, this is fun. (laughs) So, but on a serious note, I grew up with, um, we've talked about Ezra Taft Benson. He was the prophet when I was growing up. He was the prophet on my mission. And so I often thought about him as I got older, about the things I learned. I remember seeing his quotes on our refrigerator. And anyway, so of course, we're the products of our environment. And so that got me interested in our past, our shared past in Mormon history. And then also, of course, why is Mormon history important? I mean, it really, it it helps us to reflect on who we are as people, I think. It's part of our faith tradition. And it also, when we hear things from either leaders or we read things in the news, there's always a context to this, right? And I'm reminded of, I just finished reading Steve Taysom's book on Joseph F. Smith. Patrick, I'm sure you've probably read it by now. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of something in that book that I guess I knew, but didn't really quite think a lot about, which was that Joseph Fielding Smith got a lot of his material from his father, the need to systematize the church teachings, the need to get your voice out there, the need to create, you know, doctrinal harmony. I mean, this is, this is most evident in Joseph Elling Smith, but really it's, it's from his father, first and foremost, as Taysom argues. And I think he's right on that.
1: Yeah, so anyway, uh,
2: con- context is really, really important. Um, when we hear things taught, um, also history is about change, change over time. And, um, I'm not the same person I am now in my early fifties as I was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so I like to see how people change and what leads them to change, hopefully for the better.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
2: I think that's important when we study history is to see how people change and in the forces that led them to that uh, change.
0: Yeah, you so, know, there's a couple of things that you guys both said there that I actually really like. One, and, and, I, and this is something that I don't understand, like, uh, I'm sure you both are uh you know, aware that some of the things that you guys have said on this podcast or any podcast really probably does draw some criticism from kind of in the box thinkers about the church. And uh, the thing I've never understood about that is exactly what Patrick said, which is we're all human, right? And, and it's really, I personally think it's nice to hear the humanity behind these kind of exalted men that we you know, we, we sometimes exalt these men into some like figure cult of personality figure that like can do no wrong. And uh, uh, it's really helpful for me to see these people. It almost makes me in a weird way feel like I have a chance when <laughs> these 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 prophets, these people who I believe are prophets, make mistakes or do things that that, are, that show their humanity. Um, and the other thing that I think is, is important about, you know, what you just said is, is I context is important because sometimes it informs the reason why things happen the way they did. Like, I have an example of I in the last, in, in a few years ago, you know, it was dealing with a state president who gave me some advice. I won't get into the specifics, but gave me some advice and I was really confused by the advice. And then we've, we you know, we became closer and closer. And as we became closer, and I learned more about his story because I heard about his background. It made me understand why he was giving the advice that he was. And, and it made me have a completely different perspective and greater perspe- respect for him as both a president, as, as a human being for the advice he gave, right or wrong, right? It it made me understand where it was coming from and that it really was coming from a place of love and trying to do what's right. And if you don't have that, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, I think that that might be part of the reason why sometimes people in church that I've known who've left because of being offended by somebody forget that about a bishop or a state president. Um, Now that kind of puts me into another spot, which I think is really interesting about the, about the both of you. And that is that you have very much different approaches to how you kind in, in my perspective on how you deal with uh scholarship and kind of what you uh what you teach patrick our podcast was really very much about how to apply this stuff this scholarly stuff to faith and then like with matthew you know with matt it was more of a i only want to focus on the scholarship itself and i wanted to i wanted to ask you both uh what you think the utility is of your perspectives and kind of why you why you approach it that way? So, Patrick, let's start with you again.
1: Okay. Well, so it's interesting the, the, the way that you frame that because um, I I think that uh, that what Matt and I do uh, on a day to day basis from nine to five is pretty much exactly the same. Um, that uh so 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 many members of the church know me because of the books i published with deseret book the more de- devotional books books like planted where i apply and and sort of read some of this history through a theological or devotional or pastoral lens uh but uh but i've got a whole bunch of other books uh that, that, <laughs> that, that have, you know that are published by university presses that if people read it that you know that they say wait a minute where did brother mason go uh, in, in, in fact, in fact, I've had members of my ward sometimes come in and sit on my classes at, at the university, you know, because they've heard me teach gospel doctrine or something. They say, "Oh, that'd be great. I'd love to come sit down on your class." And I say, "Oh, you know, sure, fine." And and they come and they're like, what, "Wait, wait a minute. What 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 happened to my gospel doctrine teacher?" Uh, yeah. And I've got it's. Um, I, I don't shy away from who I am and, and my commitments, um, but but I always have students who who wonder. What, what my faith commitments are because in the classroom and as a scholar, I'm doing what I'm trained to, to do as a historian. Uh, I'm not there um, to, to advance uh, any particular set of beliefs. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm there to, to have a kind of fidelity to, to the evidence as we have it, and then to teach my students how to, how to interpret it as, as historians. Now, certainly then I, I do have this other side of me that, that's, that's been going on for, for the past decade also not something that I ever anticipated uh, doing, but that but I've sort of just been learning on the fly. And and, and so so some of the recent books, the, the books that the people read and a lot of members of the church read and know me for, um, they are more theological reflections on the history. But the history itself, um, I, I take a lot of pride in, in in my training as a historian. Now, maybe I've got blind spots. Maybe other people look at my historical stuff and say, no, he's He's reading that too much through a Mormon lens, and I'm, and I'm interested in that. And, and of course, I can't escape who I am. But, um, but, uh, but, but, but for me, there's always there's a kind of biculturalism and a bilingualism uh, at, at play um, that uh, in a lot of ways, Mormonism is my native tongue, but I've worked really, really hard and spent a lot of times immersed in the, in the culture and the language of the academy. And I take really seriously my ability to, to speak that language and, and operate in that culture.
0: Yeah, Awesome. I, yeah, I appreciate that. Matt, how about you?
2: Well, in the context of podcasts, I always tell people that when I do podcast work, I'm not interested in sort of faith questions because I really want them to focus on the scholarship. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I follow the same sort of guidelines, whether I'm talking to BYU Studies. They did a podcast with me a couple of
0: years back.
2: It's kind of funny. A week later on, I'm doing John Delin, right? Mormon stories. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, and, that's, uh, I got it real quick before you go. That's what I appreciate about both of you. And that is that like, you're not afraid to, to talk to anybody, you know, and, and some people I think worry about that. And I am, I think that's great. I think it's great that you don't shy away from a John delin or a BYU podcast and you're I- the same either way.
2: Yeah, I always tell the, the, the podcasters the same little spiel, which is let's focus on my scholarship and let's not criticize the brethren or the church on air. And if you do that, then I just don't want to do that. That's just not yeah. my role. And as long as you can adhere to those rules, then I'm good with that. And when I did uh, John DeLynn, I guess, in 2020, it's been a while. But we did—he's two marathon or three marathon interviews—and he was—he adhered to the rules. He didn't cross any boundaries, and so I, I really appreciated that, and I thanked him uh, later for that. So anyway, um, so with my so that's—I want them to focus on the scholarship. That's really, really what I want to do. And but from a, I guess a faith perspective, I don't deal with faith things like like Patrick has in my work, but. I do follow the Richard Bushman line of thinking, which is, and for your listeners who may not know Richard Bushman, he's one of the Mormonism's best historians. He's a retired professor of history at Columbia University and been a faithful Latter-day Saint for a long time. And he wrote, just have just happened to have it on my desk. He wrote one of the seminal books on Joseph Smith. that came Great. out. Yeah, it is a good book. Anyway, but he talks about, he said this on more than one occasion, both in podcasts and things he's written, which is that let's not hide anything. Let's get it all out there. And that'll inoculate members, you know, when they come across some difficult or challenging things online. And as long as it's out there and you don't hide from it, then you can learn from it and grow from it. But if you hide from it, people are going to sniff that out. And they're going to call you out on that. And what's interesting is that that's the approach he took with um, Roughstone Rolling. And he he took a lot of heat for that because the the church's standard narrative is being challenged in ways that most members are not used to, right? Patrick and I can read that book and maybe you, Josh, because you're a reader and you can learn things or you wouldn't be surprised if things because you've read other things, right? But um, he's challenging the narrative. You're learning about father Smith, like alcohol, you're learning about, you know, the book of Abraham was, He says it was a revelation, really not a translation. These are all new things for Latter-day Saints. He introduces polyandry for the first time. This book was published in 2005. So the saints aren't used to these kinds of uh, discussions. And with Bushman being the good historian that he is, he talked to some of the church leaders in Salt Lake before he did it. He got a uh, blessing from all people, Boyd K. Packer. And, And the reason why I say of all people it, with a smile is because uh, the late Boyd K. Packer did not believe in writing an open and honest history like that. He wanted history to be, uh, I guess, more faith promoting. And we, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, um, Brother Bushman took a lot of heat for that. And I know that because he wrote a book about his book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, a, it's a series of, of journal entries from Rough stone Rolling, how the academic... Uh, Community treated the book, how CES people, people who teach for the church, looked at it or received the book, and then just how common members received it. And the answer is it was a mixed bag. He tried to please yeah. all kinds of people, but he ended up not pleasing as many as he had hoped.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I remember when I first read that book, and I uh I remember the controversy surrounding it, and I just remember thinking, even back then, I was like, this is kind of refreshing because at the very beginning, he even explains the issue, right? The issue of there's Mormon apologists and then there's the Mormon, you know, the, the people who they're antagonists and I want to just do something that's just straight down the line. And, and, uh, and, and I had that same reaction as I talked about earlier, and that's what I appreciate about our conversations. What I find so interesting is the reason I agree with you guys and why I love having you on my podcast is because at least. Anecdotally, my friends who have left for whatever reason, they're not leaving because they found out that Joseph Smith, you know, translated the Book of Mormon with a stone and a hat for the first time. They're not doing it because of, uh, you know, any, any one specific thing in history. They're doing it because they feel as though they were kind of misled through, along the way. And so it's not it's kind of that old adage that uh, it's not it's not the deed it's the cover-up that's damaging and not that it's a necessarily a cover-up but what I mean is is that I think it's important to have these conversations out there and um, so anyhow that kind of leads me to the next the next point which is that you mentioned Boyd K. Packer kind of wanted things to be a little more faith promoting which is what we see and what you what you've defined for me as devotional literature which you'll find in deseret book versus what you guys do on in the academic world and you know matt you brought up beforehand that patrick has a unique perspective because he's done both whereas matt you focused all on the scholarship perhaps you guys can first talk about i'd like to know in your view, what that means, if someone doesn't know what that means, what it means, and then why you think each could be important. And so let's start with Patrick with his unique perspective as a as both. <laughs> dancing the dancing that that fine line between heresy and and uh, and, and, pra- and good practice, you know?
1: <laughs> well, maybe I'll, I, I'll uh, you're the host, but I want to toss it over to Matt to, to, to have oh. him define the academic and, and then maybe I can add, you know, sort of a little bit more of what I've done on the other side too, Fair if that's enough. all right.
2: That's, good. yeah. So I think the academic, I'm going to speak for myself. I wouldn't presume to speak for other academics, but for me, writing about religious history, Mormonism in particular, is that, in academic um, history, it's it's it would be, let's see, it's challenging to write with faith commitments in mind. And what I mean by that is, I'm gonna write a book, but I've gotta make my subject look good. Or I'm gonna write a book and I wanna make my subject look bad because I don't like him. And I think that that's irresponsible both both accounts. I think that you really have to look at the evidence and you have to be balanced, you have to be sensitive, and you can't pull punches you know, and I'm not here to, you know, pick on Elder Packer, of course, but Elder Packer said something about some things that are true aren't very useful. That is something that an academic historian, you know, those are principles that an academic historian would be, would be difficult to follow, right? Because you can't really cherry pick. And um, we, we have sort of our own Hippocratic oath, which is that we see evidence and we have to determine if that evidence is credible. We have to determine if it's worth putting in our book. And I think that we want to see our people in all of their their triumphs and, and in some cases in some of their failures. And I think that's what a good book does. That's why I do like uh, the Stephen Taysom book because I think he did a pretty good job walking that balance. And Richard Bushman does a pretty good job walking that balance. He's not afraid to criticize um, Joseph Smith's flaws, but also he's not afraid to, to praise the prophet either. I think, you know again, that's, that's what a skilled uh, person does. So the other thing that I the rule that I follow as I write is that I always ask myself if one is this a balanced work am I trying to be balanced? am I going overboard to be balanced? am I being sensitive to sensitive issues And secondly, am I writing about this this Mormon figure uh, differently than I would if it were a Catholic figure an evangelical figure? And if I answer yes, I'm writing about it you know, differently I'm treating the Mormon figure with kid gloves. I mean that's wrong. I don't think that that's that's um, what I strive to do. I want to treat Mormon leaders like I would if I were writing a book about the Pope, right, or any other famous leader. So those are the rules that I try to follow. And you know, sometimes when you write about controversial things, I've, I'm writing. I've written about some controversial things in my career. Patrick knows my stuff pretty well, and <laughs> and um, Elder Benson is a controversial figure. And you know, it was. I tried to be balanced. I I had to think about it a bit because it wasn't a biography on him. It was a book about his political views and how they influenced the church. But I remember um, late in the editing process, I came across a letter from the Wisconsin Historical Society of all places. And it was a journalist who wrote Elder Benson a letter. And this journalist um, is the one that really tarnished Secretary Benson's image early in the Eisenhower administration. He basically, uh, this journalist, his name was Clark Mollenhoff. He told uh, Secretary Benson, he said, look, you're, you're taking McCarthyism too far. You just accuse somebody of being a communist. You have no evidence for it. And he led this charge to get, to bring sort of, you know, to get Benson in trouble with, with, with the boss Eisenhower. Anyway. Um, and I found a letter from 1969. So many years after Benson had left the cabinet and Benson wrote Mollenhoff, a, just a beautiful letter out of the blue. And he said, I was just thinking about you the day and, and I forgive you for anything that you've you've done or said to me, and I hope that you'll forgive me for anything I've done or said to you. And I thought, man, this is this is such a generous letter on his part. And so I decided I wanted to put that in my book because it gave you a perspective and a side of Benson that, you know, you didn't see before. Yes. So anyway, that's, that's the long and short of it. I think it's important to not write with faith commitments, either pro or con, and also to treat Mormon leaders like you would other religious leaders. Oh, let, let me, me say one, if I can say one last thing, I'm sorry. One last thing. Um, I don't think, and I'm, this is a controversial statement. And I'm, I'm sure critics would get mad at me for saying this, but I don't think it's my role to judge the validity of somebody's uh, religious experience. I want religious actors to speak for themselves. If they said they had a vision, they had a vision, and the readers can determine themselves if they think it's true or not. Right. But um, I know that Joseph, that Bushman got some flack for not offering naturalistic assumptions of Smith's visions. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, I'm with Bushman. I don't think that that's his role to have to sort of give all of these alternative reasons for the visions. I mean, Bushman just sort of laid it out. He claimed he had these visions and believe him or not. And that's how I approach religious history. And that's not everyone does that, but that's really one of the rules I follow.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, I guess I just following up on that, I don't understand what they expect you as a historian to do. So are they saying that I guess, like like you said, I mean, you're just presenting the evidence. You're not saying whether it's valid or not. Uh, so they want you to say, well, he said he had a vision, but it could have been this, 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 and this, like kind of speculating on other things that could have happened that might have been more naturalistic. I just don't understand what they're expecting. You're not necessarily a scientist, right? You're, you're, a, well, you you're can, a historian. You can offer
2: other... Other um, critiques, for sure. I mean, and they're valid. It, I'm just giving you my preference, really. Uh-huh. Let me give you an example. Um, you know, Bushman, of course, wrote a big book, and there's lots of things to criticize and certainly praise. And But I remember reading about polyandry, a very controversial topic, and he introduces it, so he gets it out there in the narrative, which is good. But he doesn't really stop and pause and ask, you know, what does it mean? How does it fit? And he basically just says we don't know a lot about it. And I remember reading that. I'm thinking, ah, Bushman, it's your job to tell us more about it, or at least to make some reasonable, you know, uh, conjecture about why the prophet did it. And he didn't do that. And but anyway, it is it is a legitimate thing, Josh, to for historians to offer plausible reasons why religious leaders do what they do. But I, mm. when someone claims a, a, a revelation or a vision, I just my own personal style. I don't feel the need to have to critique it. I just let them speak in their own words and then the readers can make of it what they will.
0: Has that, uh, have there been books since that book that have gone deeper into the polyandry or has that kind of been still a, we don't know much about it. You want
2: me to take that or do you want to Patrick?
0: <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, there's been a lot more scholarship on polygamy over the past 25 years. I mean, that's, that's the thing to appreciate. It's actually how, quickly this terrain has changed in this century. Um, mm-hmm. And so when when Richard Bushman published that book in 2005, I mean, that's not even 20 years ago. So in some ways, it's a blink of an eye. But in terms of this field, and controversial topics like polyandry, um, that Bushman, he wasn't the first to ever address it. Um, uh, or, or, you know, most of the things he talked about, almost everything he talked about in there, other people had, had a, addressed at some point, he popularized it in a lot of ways because his book had so many more readers and just because of who he was, um, as, as a person, as, as a, as a well-known, uh, Latter-day Saint as, as Matt mentioned. And so, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of scholarship since then, and there will be there will continue to be more that there are there are new biographies of joseph smith being prepared right now uh that i know are, are going to spend a lot more time with polygamy than than richard did um and so th- this is one of the things about academic history that, that sometimes people also don't appreciate um is that we um we don't just lay out the facts we are making arguments we make we, we make judgments as Matt said, about which sources to include, which sources are credible, which sources are not, and reasonable people, reasonable historians, good historians, can sometimes disagree uh, on those things. Uh, we we do interpret the history. We're, we're not just antiquarians. We're not just collecting a bunch of stuff and then publishing it. We're making judgments. We're making uh, arguments. We're making interpretations along the way. I think where. Uh, and, and I would agree 110% with everything that Matt said. I think the one other thing that I would say about the, the academic study of religious history, and I always tell my students this on day one of our classes, is that using the tools of history, uh, using the discipline, the disciplinary tools and skills and methods that, that we've developed over the past 100, 150 years in the professional study of history, I cannot tell you a whether there is a God, and then B what God was doing on a Tuesday afternoon in 1831, or or or, what, or whatever pick pick, pick your date, right? And so it's I can tell you what people thought God was doing, or their their encounter with the divine, or how they reported it, but I can't make any kind of objective claims about what divine forces, whether we call it God or Allah or, or Vishnu. Uh, was doing on a particular day in history. So, so history is agnostic in that sense. And, and that's one of the reasons why, why I think some believers uh, get frustrated with academic history because they, they, they want us to not be ag- agnostic. Um, but given the skills and methods and discipline that we have as historians, we have to be agnostic, not about whether or not people experience the divine. Uh, we, we, can, we can document that really um, uh, fully. But whether, but what exactly those divine forces are, whether they are, whether they're real, quote unquote, uh, and so forth, that, those are things that, that, uh, now, now, it's true. I think sometimes scholars move from agnostic to atheist on these things. So I think this is wh- where Matt's comment is also really helpful. I, I think there there can be a kind of debunk- debunking mode and a, and a purely materialist mode that, no, obviously there's only material forces in, in this universe. And so we have to come up with a psychological explanation for all these things or some other kind of material explanation. Um, I'm, I'm much more in line with, with Matt on this that, that I, I think again, just just from our disciplinary commitments, I think we're more honest, we're more agnostic rather than atheistic.
0: Yeah. Real quick, before we go into the devotional literature part, I wanted to ask, you mentioned, Matt, you mentioned, <clears throat> I don't, uh, you know, I, I have to check myself to make sure, am I, you know, treating him with kid gloves, but do you also often feel as though the opposite is true like you sit there and you go okay so like am i trying so hard to not treat them with kid gloves that i'm going a little harsh i mean do you do you feel like that kind of pendulum swinging at times and where do you where do you strike that balance that's a good question so certainly that's what writing is a a
2: lengthy draft process right you get your ideas out and Obviously, you cut and refine. But one of the things that you do in the editing stage is you want to look at tone. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: for me, when I think I've struck a decent tone, I mean, what do I know? Right. It's my work. It sounds fine. But yeah, that's why you have other people read your work. People whose opinions you trust. Patrick knows this. Right. There are people who, who give you good critiques. Right. And you, you keep going back to them because they give you good critiques. And there are some people you probably wouldn't give your work to again because they don't really give good <laughs> critiques. And uh, either they're, they're, yeah. So, but that's, that's what peer review is. You have friends that, that review your work and they can tell you, I have friends that I want to review my work because I know that they're going to give me different things, right? If I give Patrick a, my book, I know I'm going to get Patrick's Critiqued a couple of three or four things of mine now, and I know that I'm going to get a critique from him that I, it's valuable, and I know that if I give my work to someone like say Matt Bowman, I'm going to get a different critique from Patrick's, but equally valuable, right? And that's that's really really helpful. So um, these are like uh, these are folks who are sort of you know helping you to produce the best scholarship you can produce, whether it's tone or content or or whatever, and so. That's how I sort of iron those things out. Is that I have people that have, who, whose opinions I trust read my work.
0: Yeah, Patrick, you agree with that?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, this is um, this is the the virtue and the value of the peer review system. It's not perfect, and 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 also that scholars, even though much of what we do is actually quite lonely and solitary, uh, most of our work in the archive is solitary. Most you know, writing is a very solitary thing. But it's at that point of we, we all, any scholar worth their weight in salt, you know, will, will share their work with others, both through the formal peer review process and informally. Um, you know, a lot of people are part of writing groups or just have friends who's, whose opinions they seek out. And so that's where the community is really important. Is it perfect? No, because those other people are human too, right? They all have their interests right. and, and, and so forth. But I actually do think when it's working well, and most of the time it does, the peer review process is, is, uh, I mean, that's, it's, it's a, um, it's a, it's a well-vetted system for the production and, um, uh, for, for the production of knowledge.
0: Interesting. Now, so now let's talk about devotional literature and its place in this, uh, you know, in, in all of this, uh, Patrick, you've been, you've been there. Um, so maybe you lead that discussion, uh, I'd also like to hear what the experience is like writing for a Deseret book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So, so again, when I started to make this shift, it it really was about a decade ago. Um, And, uh, and, and I've always maintained, I mean, I'm I'm still publishing, you know, all all my academic books, but so this has always been kind of a side hobby, a side project. Um, And, And it it just came out of my own personal, uh, I I started being asked to do a bunch of firesides around 2012, 2013, around church history issues. This is the other thing to keep in mind, that when I started doing that in 2012, there wasn't yet such a thing as a gospel topics essay. Um, And so the resources that the institutional church was was providing to people were, shall we say, limited. Uh, and, and, and as I was going out and doing these firesides, um, people, it was clear they were just starving for more. They just wanted more that, and, and they would always ask me, um, like, where can I learn more? What can I, you know, where, where can I get, you know, frameworks like this, like the kinds of things that I was talking about. And I didn't have much to point them to other than the scholarship itself. Um, you know, uh, go read dialogue. Go read the Journal of Mormon History. I can give you a bunch of big, long, boring books that you can read. Um, and um, but 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 it was clear that that people wanted more than just the facts. They wanted frameworks. Mm. And and so that's when I, I when I finally it was actually in a fireside and a kind of Q and A afterwards, and and I could just see like the pain and the yearning in this one woman's eyes. I'll never forget it, where she said like you know, like, where can I read more about this? Like, where can I, like, what book can I pick up? And I said, there, there is no book to, I mean, at, at this point, like even the, the, the Terrell and Fiona Givens book, The Crucible of Doubt was really the first book to, to address head on kind of faith crisis issues within, within Mormonism. And it wasn't out yet. And I said that there, there's nothing other than the scholarship. And I could just see this pain in her eye. And, and like, it, it was this moment, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm writing that book, right? <laughs> uh, I, had, I had no intention to do it. For, for me, I, I felt like it was, it was a, a kind of calling or vocation. So I did it, woke up early in the mornings and, and, and churned it out. And, and I didn't know. So you ask, how do you write for Deseret Book? I didn't know how to, um, because I'd never done it before. Nobody ever trained me to do that. That's not what I was trained to do at, at Notre Dame. I was just trained to be a historian. So I was literally making it up as I went along. I wrote the entire book in, in trying to do the best I could, essentially responding to the people whose questions I was getting in firesides. Um, and, and it really was about, okay, let's, let's take the facts as a given. I mean, uh, let's not argue with the facts. Here are the facts as we know them. Um, based on the scholarship uh, that, 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 that lots of good scholars have, have done over the past several decades. And so here are the facts. Now, what do we do with them? That's what I was trying to do in in plant and and that's that's a, now a move beyond what I do in my day job. That's a move mm-hmm. beyond my role as a historian and so now I'm working more in a pastoral mode uh now mm-hmm. I'm working more in a theological mode um so now I am bringing God into history now I'm entering mm-hmm. a different or, or i'm accepting a different set of evidences a different set of assumptions uh mm-hmm. and And theology always operates within the context of a community of faith. So I was talking now as a Latter-day Saint to other Latter-day Saints and trying to make sense of of these kinds of things. And so then, so so that's what I tried to do. Now, there's lots of different forms of devotional writing. Uh, Not everybody was happy with what I did on Planted. They thought I still, you know, gave too much away and it was too critical in in some places. Um, And then I've written a couple other things since then, partly what one of the things I've learned is I've just got to write shorter, and I've got to write um, I can't use jargon um i I don't all the conventions that I do as an academic historian with you know every piece of evidence you know that I can find relevant lots and lots of footnotes all those kinds of things you know i've I've, I've learned to pair that back in my devotional writing' it's, it's just an audience issue um and uh and so yeah it's for me it's just asking a different set of questions. Um, mm-hmm. It's asking a, and and admitting a few other kinds of evidences. Uh, I, I don't think in my devotional writing I've sacrificed my commitment to historical truth. Um, but now I'm just asking what are the theological ramifications of that historical truth?
2: Yeah. What was the, if, if you don't mind me asking, um, yeah. what was the process, Patrick, that you went through? Was it just an in house? They just have in-house editors that vet the manuscript. What was that process like?
1: Yeah, with Planet to Do, is was really interesting because again, Deseret Book didn't ask me to write that book. I just wrote it entirely on my own. They didn't know who I was. I worked, um, I approached Maxwell Institute. And so the Maxwell Institute had an in-house editor, Blair Hodges, who's fantastic. Uh, he was working there at the time. So he and I worked on the the whole manuscript together and we, we decided we're gonna finish the book and then pitch it to Deseret Book. We're not pitching the idea to them. We're pitching the finished book to them. Mm. Um, And we did. And Deseret Book, again, they had no idea who I was. I was just some obscure historian. And uh, and so they they were I I think it was mostly because of their relationship with the Maxwell Institute. They said, all right, well, okay, like, send us the manuscript. I mean, like, no promises. Our publication schedule is really full. You know, I mean, you know, they they were polite, but hedging. Um, So we sent them the manuscript and literally it was like 3 or 4 days later it was like lightning fast the editor called me back she, she she's great she just retired um she, and she's like this is it this is exactly what we want we we've, we've been waiting for somebody to do a book like this right we just didn't know that you were the one who was going to do it um and then and then, and then at that point they i have to say and and I had some of my biases and preconceptions about the kinds of books that desert book was publishing and putting on its shelves I have to say, they were phenomenal to work with. 100% supportive. They got what I was trying to do. They they wanted me to do it in my own voice, from my own perspective. It went through their internal review process. They have a very rigorous internal review process uh, that is checking. It's it's different than the peer review process that historians go through. It's kind of an orthodoxy peer review process. And I was shocked at how little they asked me to change. Um, I there was really, um, uh, there was only one thing that they came, one significant kind of substantial part that they came back with questions on. And so we just entered into a conversation. I said, here's how I'm seeing it. Here's why I'm making the case that I am. Here's why I'm arguing for what I'm arguing for. And and we came to to, to a place where we both felt good about it. So I have to say, and, and that was my experience with them uh, with Proclaim Peace, another book I've done with them as well. And so, so I have to say the process was much better than, than I had anticipated. And I think that sometimes uh, people would guess that it's like.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so real quick, I wanted to ask you, Patrick, cause that leads me to something. And I know you got a heart out in a few minutes and then Matthew and I can continue on this conversation, but you know. So that puts you in kind of a precarious position, I think, a little bit. In that now you've written for Deseret Book, now you're also a um, you're also a, an academic. So your academic audience wants one thing, your theological audience wants something different, and then you know you're a mixture of the two. You probably rub a lot of people the wrong way, and what, <laughs> at, at times, which I appreciate, I like that, I do that too, and uh, and the thing is, is that. Uh, you recently started, first of all, your podcast with Do- John DeLynn where you went on Mormon stories, I would say I listened to all eight hours of it and it I'm was sorry, abso- <laughs> no, it was absolutely <laughs> refreshing and fantastic because one, you didn't shy away from anything he asked. And I don't think I'd ever seen John DeLynn that subdued in in a, in a podcast either because you really caught him in some things that made him think, but but after that, you actually started a podcast with John DeLynn together, and you got a little bit of heat uh, from that. And perhaps maybe you can explain what happened and just how that kind of what that made you feel like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So – Actually, the, the way you described it at the very beginning is exactly the way I feel. For me, all of this is just integrated in here, right? It's, it's just who I am. Like, I've worked through this stuff. I have a theological framework that makes sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense to anybody else, but I don't really care because it's mine, right? It's it's, it's me. Um, and and then, you know, anything I say and share, if it's helpful to people, fantastic. Um but I also recognize everybody has their own journey. But but I you know met earlier I mentioned you know a sense of biculturalism and bilingualism, and that's really the way I feel. Uh, I feel hundred percent at home when I go to church. I feel a hundred percent at home when I go in the secular academy because um, I actually think that I find a lot of truth and meaning and purpose in both places. Um, and and then again I, I do a lot of that integrative work uh, inside my own head. Um, but in terms of the yeah when when I went on uh, Mormon stories. Um, I didn't, I think neither John nor I knew exactly what to expect. Um, we had not planned the questions in advance. Um, and so that really was a kind of free flowing uh, conversation. And the thing that we were both blown away with, um, it was actually quite moving, was the response of listeners to that conversation. Both of us just got both in terms of quantity and quality of response. I mean, people were, were so um, moved by what we did there. And, and it's so interesting that the, the feedback that, that we each got separately was almost the exact same. People, people rarely talked about the substance of what we talked about and what they instead, what moved them so much was simply the fact that we sat down and talked. We, we talked generously, which we, we talked with one another, honestly, with a, with a lot of vulnerability. And res- and with a lot of respect and uh, for for one another, without you know um, personal attacks or or anything, just 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 the kind of conversation we had. And I, I think it just shows that people are starving for that kind of thing, right? Well, starving. and also,
0: and also, real quick, just imagine if every every sibling who had a sibling that left the church could have a conversation like yeah, that. How exactly. different! And- how different everything would be. Yeah. And
1: that, that's what we heard i mean i i literally have emails in my inbox that that where the the subject line is you saved my marriage um mm. be, and, it, and it's because of that again it's not because of i gave some data point <laughs> right right uh it, it was it, we simply modeled a way to talk to one another and i don't think we did anything revolutionary but maybe in in our in the world we live in today maybe decency and and generosity are are revolutionary and so after we did that, and based on the response that, that, that we got, I mean, John and I stayed in touch and, and, and we said, well, what would it look like to, to maybe continue to model something like that? So we came up with this idea of doing a regular podcast where we and, and what we decided is we, we don't want to get on and just like debate all the truth claims in some ways that like that's been done. We, we kind of know what those sides sound like. So that was less interesting to us than just like modeling this kind of civil discourse. So we said, well, let's just talk about whatever happened in the news that week around Mormonism. And then we'll just talk about it from our different perspectives. And we brought in Jana Reese, who we both respect. I'm just one of the best journalists and columnists, you know, working on these kinds of issues also with a Ph.D. in American religion. And so the three of us uh, started this. And and we we um, long story short, we, we did two episodes and we knew they weren't good enough. We knew they weren't tight enough. Um, but, but we put them out there kind of with the idea of like getting peer review, like getting feedback and, and hey, what do you all think about this? How can we make it better? And, and so forth. And I have to say, I, I think I think we made a couple of tactical errors in the way that, th- that we went about it. Um, uh, there, there were some framings that, that we didn't do sufficiently. It, it was never it was never imagined as a Mormon stories product. Actually, it was it was always um, we were pretty committed to the idea it was going to be very separate from Mormon stories. But we hadn't fully built out all of our own platforms. So we released the first two episodes on Mormon stories. And mm. and I think that confused a lot of people. So, again, I, th- I think we made a, a couple of tactical uh, mistakes. Um and, and yeah, and, and, and again, lots of generous response, lots of people appreciating and seeing what we were trying to do. Really, I'm, I'm very committed to peace building, and that's what I thought about this in terms of this podcast. Um, not everybody saw it that way, um, John especially, uh, Janet to some degree, more than I have appreciated, um, but but especially John is, is just in a lot of people's crosshairs, um, whether, whether you wanna say rightly or wrongly. Um, and and it became, um, it, it just got to, and I won't share everything and I, I won't share all the private conversations that, that we had among the three of us, but, um, but it became kind of untenable, especially for me. Um, and it, it, it wasn't doing, and I, and I didn't see a way forward for it to do um, what I had anticipated it doing. And so I pulled out um, and Uh, and I tweeted about it and then got a lot of heat about uh, that and so forth. And so long story short, um, I a hundred percent believe, um, feel at peace with what we were trying to accomplish in that podcast in terms of just having a conversation, right. And not being afraid and, and just being able to talk about it from lots of different perspectives. Right. And, and it's okay to disagree and, and, um, I also feel very much at peace. I feel 100% at peace for the reasons I, I pulled out. and John and Jana and I had some great conversations about that. We we all, um, uh, you know, I, I think we all shared a a a, um, a a common regret that we the that the project wasn't going to move forward. Uh, and I do share that. Um, but we all, you know, we're all on great terms, and and and, and so. So it it just didn't work out, and so I believe in the project. This this particular thing didn't work out, um, but overall, this sense of like, hey, we we can talk to each other across these lines, um, and uh, and we can learn from one another. I 100 percent believe in that.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting you brought that. Like I said, I know you have a hard out, and you're you're a few minutes yeah. over that, but um, you know, I, I can tell you personally that I appreciate your approach. I really do. And, and uh like I said, I mean, I was amazed at how I was one of those people who was just shocked about how well those, those podcasts went. And even with you, you know, Matthew, you had podcasts with, with John too. And they both, I just was uh, the, it was impressive to me. I wish more people understood the respect that he did have for both of you for coming yeah. on and being willing to, to do that. And sure. He's, he's got some opinions and they're they're He's salty. You know what I mean he's definitely salty about what what happened to him and um but you know it is what it is and so yeah well,
1: maybe that's, that's the last thing I'll say and I, I do have to run I apologize um and so you guys can talk about me when I'm gone um yeah. but uh, we will don't I, worry we will yeah, yeah, we yeah. will a yeah. lot <laughs> I, maybe two two things uh, on on John I mean look're we're, we're all just complicated individuals and we all have our histories and and John has obviously walked a, a difficult road and and he's he's borne the pain of lots and lots of other people's stories. And, um, and, and I've come to, um, uh, you know, in, in our interactions, both the, the people have seen on screen and and privately, um, I've come to, to, to really respect and, and honor um, some of the challenges and, and, and difficulties he's been through in, in trying to be in a place of, of truth-telling. Now he and I ultimately land differently on on some of the faith questions, but but I really honor um, the humanity that he tries to bring to that and and to lift up people's stories. I I, I really do. Um, uh, so so I'm I'm happy to count John as a friend. Um, and then the the last thing that I'll say, uh, just in terms of the overall theme here, uh, in Leonard Arrington's. Um, uh papers and i can't remember this this shows up in print i can't remember if it's in greg prince's book or if it's in Arrington's just his, his published diaries um but he 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 has some correspondence uh, somebody's writing actually a, a mission president is writing leonard Arrington a, a letter it's when errington is church historian and this mission president saying like are you really sure we want to we want to tell like the whole truth like like really um <laughs> uh, like are, are, you, are you really committed to this and and Arrington, I, I wish I would have been prepared, and uh, so I could have read you the quote. But but just to paraphrase, uh, Arrington said, um, he said, "Of course, I'm I'm committed to tell the truth. I mean, first of all, I mean, it's the thirteenth article of faith. We believe in being honest, right? But but he said, he said, I've you know, m- my colleagues and I have, have spent years going through the church archives, and and I can say that there's nothing in there that has dissuaded us from our faith. Uh, and then he says. I, for me, the, the kind of takeaway is, uh, or, or the, the most important insight is, he says, if this is really true, if, if the church is even an approximation of what we claim it to be, and if, and if we're committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be afraid of any truth. We shouldn't be afraid of any fact. Um, that, that, that we should look at it with, with courage, with openness. Um, and then do the work of trying to decide what it all means in terms of God's redeeming of His history of, of His people, and and that's that's very much the way I feel. So so I'm not afraid of any fact. I'm not afraid of any conversation. Not afraid of any truth, because ultimately I I, I believe that that God can redeem all things, including a uh, a, a very human history that I contribute yeah. to. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> we all do. So well, Patrick. I know you. I know you got to go. So appreciate you taking the time. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Patrick. You bet. See ya. All right.
0: So now, Matt. Matt now, you know, you heard a lot about what he said, and uh, you know, your view as someone who's outside hearing what he had to say about the process uh, of Desiree's Book. Uh, you know, what is your takeaway about devotional uh, devotional literature?
2: It has its place. I think that. That as long as it's couched as devotional literature, and what I mean by that is devotional literature has faith commitments in mind, right? There are certain boundaries that somebody writing for Desert Book cannot, you know, uh, encroach upon. And that is, they, they can't critique the church, they can't critique a doctrine, they can't critique a leader. Those are the boundaries that Desert Book has set, and that's, that's fine, it's devotional literature, I think the problem with Desert Book is that when they produce things, this is, again, my opinion, but when they produce things that they call scholarship, mm-hmm. and I think that's where you you sort of blur those lines, because I'm, I'm thinking of a book in particular um, on uh, Nauvoo they did years ago, and, you know, it was written by a legitimate historian, but it was published by Desert Book, and Knowing what I know about some of the source material, I mean, the 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 writer pulled a lot of punches, Mm -hmm. and you know, if that were an academic press, that's just something that you're not at liberty to do, or you shouldn't do. Mm -hmm.
0: So, at least can I stop you right there? So, if you were if you wrote a book like that uh, in the academic in an academic press, would it even get published based on the peer review? Well,
2: (laughs) that's interesting. Of course, it depends on the peer reviewers, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we should talk about peer review, how it works first. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and then come back to that question. Yeah. So when you produce a manuscript for an academic press, it's um, you, you, you you can get an advanced contract. That is, you, you turn in a prospectus first about what the book's about. You might even do a sample chapter or two. Then you get an advanced contract, and then you write the book. Or you can finish the book and then pitch it as a finished product, and, and see if they want to publish it. So what happens is the editor looks at the manuscript or the proposal, and they say, oh, yeah, this is something that's in our catalog. We, we do publish Mormon history. This is something that we, we would consider doing. This looks interesting, or this doesn't look interesting. I'm not even going to send it out for a peer review. But what you do as a scholar is you, you'll give the editor maybe, I don't know, eight to 10 names about people in the field who who you know can do a really good critique of your work and they take that list of eight to ten scholars and they send it out to the one, three of those two i guess two of those people you don't know who they are mm-hmm. and so or they don't have to follow your list at all let's be clear it's their prerogative mm-hmm. but anyway they send it out to two of your um readers and And then it's quite simple if the two readers come in like this that means they like the manuscript and they recommend publication or it could be like that one says yes it's great the other one says no or it could be like this well we need to see it's not quite ready for publication yet but if the author does this this and this then maybe we'll we'll give it a yes so if you get one like that and one like that that means they can either um, send it out for a third reviewer to override the negative review, or they can just think and look at this negative review and say, That negative review is so devastating. We're not going to waste our resources by sending it out to a third person. Mm-hmm. So it's an anonymous process. And the way that I do it is that when I give, I've published several books with university presses, and I always try to do a balance of Mormon and non Mormon scholars. And the non-Mormon, of course, would be people who have an interest in Mormon history, right? There, there are lots of scholars, and Patrick and I know them. I mean, we go to conferences with them, we're on panels with them. And they they're not Latter-day Saints, but they make Mormonism part of their professional study. So they write books and articles on Mormonism, just like Patrick and I do. And so I always try to get an outside perspective from one of those folks. And then, you know, I want to get um, you know, a perspective from Mormon scholars. So I, that's my approach. And I always feel like I get the best of both when I do that, because sometimes you can, you can kind of discern the critique, you know, Oh, this critique, it looks, yeah, that looks like it's from the person who's not of the faith, right. Just the way they express themselves, the way they, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. interpret the material. So that's what I do. Um, desert book doesn't do that. Obviously they're devotional. They don't do peer review. It's called blind peer review. So the Mm -hmm. presses will send it out. You don't know who they are. And the, the scholars can review themselves or identify themselves if they want to, that's their prerogative. Mm-hmm, and some, mm-hmm. some scholars will, um, Patrick, for example, reviewed a book of mine and um, this book that's going to be out on the race and priesthood band here next year, Patrick was one of the reviewers. And I, of course, put him on a list because he's critiqued my work before. And I, as I said, a minute ago, I value his voice. His critique is very helpful. And Patrick agreed to identify himself as one of the university press reviewers, which was great because that meant if I had additional questions from his critique, I could, I know who to talk to. And that's the whole purpose of it is in the spirit of being helpful, you know, so it doesn't mean I have to follow anybody's critiques. Right. That's part of the the thing of an author is you have to figure out which critique you want to accept or which one you want to reject. But even the ones you reject, it really forces you to think about how people read your work, whether it's tone or content or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so um, Patrick and others, you know, um, have done great critiques. And that's why people like him are you know, valuable. And I'd like to think that when I critique other people's works, and I do often, both for journals and presses, that I'm giving constructive, helpful critique or feedback to make the, the finished product the best that it can be. So Mm -hmm. Desert Book doesn't do that. Theirs is in-house. And and that's okay. Again, it's devotional. They have an internal committee, as Patrick said, about they're looking for orthodoxy. They don't want to look for anything that might challenge a testimony or denigrate a leader or something along those lines. Whereas in the university press community, they don't don't care about faith commitments like that. They just don't care. They want Mm -hmm. responsible scholarship. And whether it makes the the subject that you're writing about look good or bad or indifferent, they don't care. That's just not what they're Mm -hmm. after. So anyway, that's how I do it is I try to get a sort of a broad um, sampling of people who reviewed my work. And I should tell you, too, that that uh, when I send my work in and I, and I know others would would do the same, is that we also we, we already have five or six of our friends critiquing our manuscript before it gets sent to the press.
0: Right. Right. So and you just do that on your own so that you know what it sounds like.
2: Yeah, because you, you want to get feedback long before you submit it to the press. You want it to be the best. I mean, you're trying to get it published, right? So you want it to be the best product it can be before it goes out to uh, a blind peer reviewer or
0: but blind peer review.
2: So um, in my case, this this new book coming out next year uh, on, on the priesthood ban, I probably had six or seven or eight of my friends read it beforehand. And I had friends read certain chapters that I thought they could really help me with. Interesting. Yeah. And then Patrick, of course, read it for the, for the press. Mm -hmm. So so when you do
0: that, do you get, uh, do you change sometimes change what you're doing? Like, do they say, Hey, Mike, your tone here, you need to change that up a little bit. And then you make changes or not. How does that usually work for you?
2: Yeah. I mean, sometimes, I mean, usually I haven't had, I mean, I've written lots of Mormon books now, so tone is not really an issue for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess the readers will judge that, but usually for me, like, let me give you an example. Um, so I'm writing a book about the priesthood ban and of course it's important to have black Latter-day Saint voices in there. Right. And, and, if, you know, imagine writing a book about the priesthood ban and not getting the voice of, or perspective of black Latter-day Saints. I mean, that'd be crazy. Right. 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 Well, what happens when you don't have a strong record early on of Black Latter Day Saint voices. You've, you've got Elijah Abel, who's a very famous priesthood holder, Black priesthood holder in the 19th century. You've got a woman named Jane Manning James. Those are the two sort of iconic figures that people write about. And um, one of my critiquers, uh, one of my friends who reviewed it in uh, before it went to the press, he made a, a great critique. He said, "Look, it'd be great if this is the chapter of the Devil of the early 20th century." It'd be great if you had a, a voice from a, a woman, um, particularly a black Latter-day Saint. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's a great suggestion, but they just don't exist. I mean, as far right. as I'm aware, the source material isn't there. So I wrote back. I suspect that this scholar knew that. And I wrote back and I said, you know, I just I can't think of anything. I've been in the archives. I just can't think of anything. And he said, well, okay, maybe you can't find a a black Latter-day Saint woman, but what about um, is there somebody from the Relief Society? Get their perspective on the band. I thought, that's a great suggestion. And so that one critique um, from a trusted scholar, um, Matt Bowman's his name, and so that's what Matt said. And so I put, I found um, Susie Young Gates, Brigham Young's daughter, wrote a book or published a book that... Uh, it, it, it's, it's a racial history of sort of the world. It wasn't an original piece. It was just sort of, she was taken from genealogies from the 19th century and from anthropology textbooks. It was just kind of a cut and splice, if you will. And she didn't claim that it was original. But anyway, it was sort of like a, a racial history of the, of the world and how people moved and migrated and so forth. And they studied this in Relief Society. Three of the apostles read the book before they made it an official ma- manual for the release society. So I thought, wow, this isn't just some obscure book. This is something that they read in release society. So I didn't have that in an, uh, an early uh, draft. And so Matt convinced me that, um, I don't think he mentioned her name, but he just said, you need a woman's perspective on, on the band. And so I found Susie Young Gates. I found this book and it was, I added it you know, a little chunk in my book. So, That's what you do. You you you're aware of certain things. And um, when you get those kind of kinds of critiques, it really it makes the scholarship stronger than it might otherwise be. You know, it's
0: interesting. I wanted to ask you this because I know, like, for example, if if. So if you wanted to learn about the law, I would not recommend that you buy a book that we're reading in law school. Right. I mean, just because it's just it's, you know, for just the standard reader, they're just not going to be able to follow it. So uh, now I enjoy reading your books, which are scholarly uh, in nature. Do you think that the the kind of rank and file Latter-day Saint, that that academic literature on Mormon history is useful? Oh, Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think, I, I mean, I wouldn't write if I didn't think it was useful. I think maybe a, um, another way to look at your question is how do we get rank and file members to read scholarship? Because in my yeah. in my um, experience, very few Latter-day Saints read scholarship. I mean, just go in. I remember on my mission, I, I took a liking to books early on in my life. Um, I guess my mission would be the first time I, I was aware of of what LDS writers were doing. I fell in love with Hugh Nibli on my mission, for example, and I read other people Mm -hmm. and, and I remember, you know, I I grew up in Maine and served a mission in Idaho. So obviously a predominantly LDS population. So I was in a lot of LDS homes and I remember looking at their libraries and I was just shocked that very few of them had anything other than from desert book, right. Or, or Mm -hmm. seagull or, or, um, eborn or just some LDS presses. So, um, and I remember my dad growing up, there was a bishop in our ward who was, he was a college professor actually, and he was a great scholar, great gospel scholar. That's all I heard. I think my dad conflated PhD with scholar, right? And, <laughs> right. And, you know, and, and he was a scholar in his field, a scholar of botany, but, but my father, you know, he's a scholar of the gospel and all this stuff. Well, I remember going into his house after my mission, and I was just flummoxed that there was nothing of scholarly value in his library. And here's an academic that should, I would presume would read things. But anyway, um, the question is, how do we get people to read this and our scholarship? And and why should they spend time reading our scholarship? And for me, my litmus test is always my mother, who is, um, she's an educated reader, but she's not reading scholarship. And so to my current book that will be coming out i had her read a chapter i had her read the introduction and i want her feedback you know from a just a sort of a lay person in the pews how does this look to you and yeah. now a scholarship is th- this is new stuff right i'm advancing right. new stuff new claims and as i point out in the introduction that the church has not done a very good job telling this story of the priesthood ban. you know the manuals you sort of read the manuals oh it just happened president kimball had a revelation on june 1st well That's not really what happened. It was a long and lengthy process, as we talked about in a previous podcast. And so this is going to challenge people's narrative, not in a bad way, but it's going to be, you know, in a a new way that there's a lot more to the story than they get from the the church manual and the Doctrine and Covenants when it just says, you know, official declaration two. And so so I I use my mother as a litmus test to get her feedback.
0: Yeah, well, and that's, and I, I agree with what you're saying, because, again, as I said earlier in the podcast, anecdotally, the friends that I have, um, they aren't necessarily, uh, you know, rocked or or have any sort of faith struggle with the concept of, you know, yeah, in the early 1800s and 1900s, like, white men were racist. You know, that that that's not something that they struggle with necessarily. What they struggle with is why am I just now hearing about this? My my vision has been that all of a sudden one day Spencer W. Kimball had a revelation and everybody agreed. And then next thing you know, the big day has come. Right. And so that's where I think that the the struggle is 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 kind of this this push pull between wanting to be faith promoting but wanting to be honest and truthful about the things that happened and the kind of push pull between that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that there is utility in reading these books. I've learned a ton and it doesn't for me, you know, it, so when you do these things, though, you know, um, you don't do them with faith and mind at all. Uh, but how is as somebody who's reading, would would you recommend they read? Like, how would they read this in conjunction with the stuff they're reading in church?
2: Well, I mean, if
0: you're let's for example, if you're
2: giving a church lesson on the priesthood ban, I can imagine that my book, or at least the chapter that deals with the revelation, I go into great detail about this process and how it weighs on President Kimball's mind and. How he has to work with the 12 who don't want to lift the ban at least some of them don't right and he wants to sort of work with them to hey look this is god's will we need to do this for the betterment of the church so if you read that chapter this is chapter seven of my next book if you read that chapter and you're about ready to go teach a lesson on official declaration number two i mean it is going to give you so much context and background and i dare say respect and appreciation for president kimball because it was no small thing what he had to do. Some of the early, some of the, the brethren in the 12 had some very strong views about the ban and African-Americans. And and they, they just, you know, Elder McConkie is one of them. And he said something interesting that I think Latter-day Saints totally misconstrued today. He gave this talk in August of 1978 after the ban was lifted And it was a talk to to CES people, people who work, teachers who work in the church, seminary institute. And he said, forget everything I said. We have a new, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but a new light, a new dawn. And a lot of people took that to mean that forget everything I said about, you know, African-Americans in the past and what I said about race and the curse of Cain and all that stuff. That's not what he said. That's not what he meant. What he meant was, I said that the priesthood ban would never be lifted in my lifetime and clearly I'm wrong because here we are. So anyway, um, so Elder McConkie had some very strong views about um, race, and oddly enough, though, he was one of the first of the apostles to come around um, to support President Kimball, recognizing that the ban needed to be lifted in order to proselytize the world. So I think it's, um, I'm not, like Patrick, I'm not afraid of the truth. I think that you, you, you can't, you have to be honest, right? You can't, You can't cherry pick. You can't sweep things under the rug. Um, I don't write, as I said, with faith commitments in mind, but having read enough literature and I've written a little bit about, I've written a lot about the gospel topics, essays, how they came about. So I know a lot about these kinds of issues um, that in my experience writing about this, that it, it never serves the church well to hide something. Or to sweep it under the rug, particularly when somebody, a Latter-day Saint person finds out about it. And then all of a sudden the cover-up's always worse than the crime. Right. And I think in my experience, the church is, um, and maybe we should get in the weeds just a a minute here. That over the years, at least in the last 60, 50, 60 years, there have been some intense differences among the church leaders about how to tell our story, Mormon, Mm -hmm. Mormon history. So let's talk detail for a moment. So, Elder Packer, Elder Benson, and Elder Peterson, Marky Peterson, they had, those three had very strong views that if it's not faith-promoting, it shouldn't be written or told. And then, strangely enough, President Kimball and Elder McConkie, um, they argued that, that if, if Latter-day Saint historians don't tell or write an honest history, then it'll be left to other people to write that history. And so McConkie and uh, Spencer Kimball wanted Latter-day Saints to write uh, histories that would sometimes capture the flaws of leaders. And I can't think of a better example than President Kimball's own son. And his son has um, written two biographies of his father's presidency. One was published in 1977. You can see why that would be a problem, right? Because it happened before <laughs> the revelation, yeah. which is the biggest thing in his ministry, right? Right. And then just after the, the priesthood revelation, um, he wrote a second book because of what had happened. And I should also say that I think uh, Ed Kimball thought his father was going to pass early. He had health problems. And so he thought, you know, I'll just write this book while he's still alive. Anyway, um, turns out his father didn't pass away until 1985, but so he wrote a second book. The manuscript was finished in the early 80s, but it wasn't published until the 21st century. And mm-hmm. uh, Ed Kimball told me an interesting story when I met with him years ago. He's now uh, passed. But when I met with him, he said, uh, he said Matt, I finished the, the, the biography on my father and I let him read it. And there was a part of it he didn't like. He said, You need to make me a little bit more human. I've got flaws you know what my flaws are he's talking to his son I want to see some of those flaws in this book because I want people to recognize me as a human being and I thought to myself wow that's really really interesting and of course the historian in me you know uh what flaws are you talking about Ed right (laughs) give me something
0: and give
2: me one he said that I I wrote a sentence in there that some people didn't like, including Desert Book. They didn't like the sentence because that's who he ultimately published it with. But I felt that it needed to be in there. And he said that my father had racial prejudices common to people in his generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine that. A guy that was born in the late 19th century has some racial prejudice. And, uh, And there are people who work for the church who don't want that in the book. And I'm thinking right. to myself, oh, please. Right. There's, a right. to, there's, there's a way to tell this story, too, because here's a guy that, that grew up in um, Arizona, a small little town in Arizona, who uh, had some racial prejudices. And he becomes the church president who does the most magnificent thing in the history of the church when it comes to race, right? Allows them full inclusivity in the church's rituals. If that's not a great story of evolution, I don't know what is. Sure. And so obviously I'm not a fan of, of uh, Elder Packer, Elder Peterson, Elder Benson, and they would have been of the ilk to, they didn't, they didn't tell Ed Kimball to take that out, but they're of that ilk. If they read the manuscript, they probably would have said, don't put that in there. And whereas President Kimball wanted it in there. And, uh, you know, so I think, I think it's really, really important for people to see their leaders as humans, not as sort of cardboard cutouts that they can't relate to.
0: Well and I think I think that the the at least as a member I think the utility of that is when something happens that see that is a mistake um you're you're a little more empathetic and it doesn't shock you as much because, like, I, you know, I can tell just based on the conversations I've had with my friends who grew up in the 90s in seminary generation, that's been the, the struggle, right? You know, everything the prophet says from the pulpit is doctrine. And then now it's like, well, not every, not everything he says. I mean, you know, it's got to be, if he says it more than once and then everybody else says it's good, too, and you hear it, it's in a manuscript somewhere, then, you know, maybe it's doctrine, you know. It's just, and so it becomes like a. It, it becomes hard, you know. Th- that kind of thinking shifting is hard. Whereas if you just understand, they're imperfect. I, I mean, I had an offline conversation with a good friend of mine on this very issue. Actually, it came out as you due to your your podcast with on Blacks and the Priesthood, and uh, you know, I I shared with him. I go, you know, that it's you. You know, if you don't have the ability, if the canon is truly open and Revelation is moving, then it means that anything can change, and you have to be willing to look at that. You know, you have to be willing to accept that people are human and mistakes are made, and the atonement applies to the church as well, and Revelation can happen. So, you know, I, I thought, of, as you were talking, I thought about a question, and let me give you a little bit of context for this. I went one time to a... Um, I went to, I was an elders quorum president and I went to a conference that was specific for bishops and elders quorum presidents with Elder Bednar and there was a QA. and a And they asked him as a member of the quorum of the 12, what keeps him up at night? And I was very surprised by his answer um, because his answer was very interesting. He said, I am concerned that the growth of the church in Africa is going to be choked out by the traditions of the Western church. And he said, if there was anything that was going to destroy the church, it was the traditions of it, of the church that were going to destroy it. And I found that to be very interesting. It wasn't anything about, you know, I'm concerned about at the time, president Monson was the president and I'm concerned that his health is or anything like that. It was something like that. And so I wanted to ask you as an academic scholar who studies Mormon, Mormon studies, what keeps you up at night?
2: Um, as a scholar and in terms of how people
0: review my work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like what, what is it that, that, I mean, uh, well, let me, let me just provide a little bit more. I got to think that if you go into your work, there is a a portion of you that thinks that what you are doing is very important. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, I'm sure you don't do it for, for the money or the accolade. Right. So, so if, if that's the case um, I got to think that this is important to you, which means that there are things about it that concern you. And I'm just curious, like, as you think about this, as you're writing specifically on Mormon studies and these controversial issues, what, what, it, is there anything that worries you about it? There are things that make that you can, that you're concerned about things that, make you sad about it or happy about it
2: yeah i mean yeah so maybe two things one would be of course you always want people to receive your work in the spirit in which it's given right you're trying to be helpful you're trying to be you're writing the truth as you understand it based on how you interpret sources and you know you you want you want people to be enriched by your work i mean there's a reason why we're doing this you want to learn from it and so when I speak to Latter-day Saints and various audiences, it's, uh, you know, there's always people when they're hearing a new narrative, they're like, Oh, right? And even yeah, talking right. about Elder Benson, you know, he's a controversial figure, you know? Yeah, and right. I, I mean, I don't, I can't help that when they feel that way, but I, I wish they wouldn't, but I, I always try to be sensitive, but it's true, he's a controversial figure. And I'd be lying if I told you that he wasn't, right? Um, The other thing that worries me or concerns me is that there are some folks who who work in the church. They're um, they're good people and they have people above them. The church is always hierarchical. Right. And I guess maybe what I'm trying to say is uh, I think the church has a problem with correlation. Right. They always want to produce something faith promoting at the expense of something that that ultimately might be harmful in the long run. And for example, I'm thinking about correlation. They review things that the church publishes from um, the, history, the history department. And I, I don't, like sometimes they redact things that shouldn't be redacted, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, it's one thing to um, redact sensitive things to dealing with the temple. I think most people, I shouldn't speak for scholars, but I, a fair number of scholars in my world would say that's just fine. It's it's a sensitive and sacred thing. It should be redacted. That's all good. Um, Maybe redact things that other other sensitive things could be church finances, could be, you know, things along those lines. But what happens is in my sad experience, we've seen redactions where sometimes we learn that, you know, such such and such general authority had a temper, right? We got to redact that. Or you know why i i I know i know it's frustrating because because well we'll come back why it's frustrating another one would be you know uh general authority x um gee cussed once in a while when you know something fell on his foot you know you (laughs) you gotta get rid of that and and there are some other things too i'm being a little little flippant here but but you get the picture and as a historian that's who these people are right that's mm-hmm. that humanness that we can all relate to when we have something dropped on our foot. We might say something that we might regret, but it, or we wouldn't want our kids to hear, right?
0: Yeah. But
2: anyway, um, in my experience, there's been some redactions along those lines, and I'm, I'm totally not in favor of that. I think right. it really, it, it makes them, these, these leaders, out to be somebody they're not in some cases. And I want to just be clear that with the temple and some other sensitive things, that's all good. That's all fine. You know, those things are sacred and sensitive they need to be redacted. But when we're dealing with the humanness of a leader, those things should not be redacted. And sadly, I've seen instances where they have been redacted.
0: You know, it's interesting when you think about that, what came to my, my mind was Facebook and Instagram. You know, it's almost like they want a Facebook profile pic. They want their wall to be clean of nothing vulnerable or bad. Right. You know, they just wanted to be them on vacation all the time with their families, you know, and, and look at how wonderful my life is without showing in. And, and the thing, the thing that I find so damaging about that is that, you know, this is what I think is a big struggle. And and I've, I've experienced this myself is that it promotes a view of people that are not accurate and it makes other people who know their own accuracies feel as though they're never going to be good enough you know when you go to and i'm only thinking about this in the in the in the course of rank and file membership in the church uh, you go to church everybody's wearing their Saint sunday best all the kids are eating cheerios in the pew and you know what i mean and and the every you know not every, but most of the guys who are getting up to bear their testimony. I'm so grateful for my wife. I'm so grateful for this. I, you know, my life is so wonderful and all of these things. And the problem with that is, is when you know inside that your life doesn't look like the cookie cutter version of what everyone is trying to portray, that leads a lot of people who are faithful to not want to come. And, uh, and that's, I think it's the same thing, right. Is that you sit there and you go, there's this person, this iconic figure, who's so wonderful. If you're not willing to like, look at the humanity and show like, yes, this person did every once in a while cuss, this person happened to turn the TV on, on Sundays to watch football. You know, like this, you know, this president of the church who grew up in a time when everybody was racist. Up and have some racial prejudice, right? I mean, to to show that that you're not that far off. You know, that we're all we're all having a real human experience. There's so much utility in that. And I and I'm curious why the why these people that you're talking about don't want that out there. I mean, do you do you have an idea why they don't?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. So some of the brethren, and I want to qualify some, not all, because they have different opinions about a lot of things, as you can imagine, but some of the brethren still follow the Elder Packer, Elder Benson, Elder Peterson mode of history. Only write it if it's faith-promoting. Only tell it if it's faith-promoting. And so if you believe that philosophy, then that filters down to the correlation committee, and they don't want material in there that might that somebody where somebody might see a, an apostle or a prophet as being a little too human, they just don't want that in there because it's not faith promoting. They would argue. Now it seems like you and I are on the same page here, where it could be faith promoting because you can see their humanity, you can see their personality, you can relate to them more. But that's not how the correlation committee thinks. And I, I've been, I, I've told this story many, many times in public. I've shared it with general authorities who come to my talks at the history conferences I, I go to and I say that it's the it's church is not served well when it's not transparent. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, when I, when I get on my little soapbox and circles like that, they, they agree with me, but the problem is they don't hold the levers.
0: <laughs>
2: and right. so, and so, well, I, you know, I, there's some examples I could give. I probably shouldn't yeah. um, at least on air, but um, they have had issues in the past about polygamy. How much should we say about polygamy? And how much should we say about a prophet's mental health issues? That's another one, right?
0: Mm-hmm. I,
2: I, see, I, I hear this stuff and I'm thinking Latter day Saints, or anybody for that matter, who struggles with mental health, whatever it is, they, they could find something really, really faithful or inspiring learning about the mental health issues. Of a leader,
0: you know. You know, bringing that up, I have heard Jeffrey R. Holland speak about situational depression that he's dealt with, and I remember thinking those were some of his best talks because he felt so human and so reachable, so attainable. And I, you know what I mean, just hearing him say, "Here, I get lonely. I get sad. You know, it, it's not all me just having spiritual experiences all the time." It really made him reachable, which I appreciated.
2: Yeah. I think he crossed a threshold when he acknowledged his publicly his issues with mental health and depression. And, but I'm thinking of uh, George Albert Smith, right? I don't think you're going to find in a lesson manual anytime soon that he was really, really depressed. I mean, as the church president, he had nervous breakdowns. His mental health was probably as fragile or more than any other church present we've had. Wow. And yeah, Joseph F. Smith had some interesting issues and there are others, right? Mm-hmm. And in the interest of transparency, um, that sort of record needs to be um, transparent when, when we look at letters of theirs or journals or, or whatever writings maybe, but yet, you know, the correlation you know that's just something they would not want out, right? That that George Albert Smith had a history of mental breakdown. He had several in his life, mm-hmm. and obviously, I, I, you know, I'm not a physician. I have I don't have his medical records, so I don't really know what led to it. I don't know how it came about, but I do know that he's had several uh, nervous breakdowns throughout the course of his life, both as an apostle and as church president, and. Um, so Correlation would not, if they were to publish his diaries tomorrow, I can, I can guarantee you they would strike all of that out. And Elder Holland, I'm speculating here, but I, I think I have good grounds. Elder Holland, since he broke that threshold that, you know, obviously it's out there. It was his story to tell because it's his life. But, um, I think Correlation, they just feel like they have to protect the church and, Mm. And that's fine, That that's what they do. That's their charge is to protect the church. I guess uh, from from my perspective as a historian, um, how they think protecting the church and how I think protecting the church are really two different things, because I think transparency is the best way to protect the church.
0: Well, and, and the thing is, is you may be protecting the church right now, but the truth is gonna come out. I mean, who would have thought in, in 1980 and 90, that the internet would completely change the way we get information and make it completely and un- you're unable to hide a lot of this info anymore, you know, and, and think of the damage that some of that, those decisions that were made has done. I mean, as I've said multiple times now, a lot, most of the people I know who have struggled with church history have not been struggling with the doctrine itself, but the, the way that it was portrayed for, so they feel a little betrayed. And I've been able to, you know, I've, I have a lot of friends. I am too. I just go, well, people are imperfect. And, you know, uh, I still believe the doctrine to be true. Some of my friends that that, that's not the way they've, they've handled it. And it's unfortunate because that is such a, that is such a fixable error. You know what I mean? Um, when it's, it's, it's one thing when you have somebody, the conversations that I have, it's one thing that when someone says, I don't believe the doctrine, then you go, well, yeah, that's uh that's kind of not a fixable, you know? <laughs> it's just, yeah, that's uh that's a, uh, okay. Well then, yeah, you probably shouldn't, probably shouldn't come. You know what I mean? uh, Whereas when you have somebody who says, yeah, you know, I was offended by this or that, or I, it really bothers me the way the church handled this. It's like, that is such a, that's such a fixable thing, you know what I mean? And um, how do you how do you turn you know it's like how do you turn that boat around?
2: Well, the, the church is trying. You know, they are trying because they've seen some of these surveys that we're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Patrick and I, our mutual friend Janet Reese, that he mentioned earlier, she's done some great work with with disaffection, why people leave, and she's had she's done lots of surveys and it's, it's not because they got their, their feelings hurt or the Bishop offended them or they wanted to sin and party. Those are not the reasons why people are leaving. They're leaving because of transparency issues that we've talked about with church history. They're leaving because of social issues, right? They're, they're friendly towards LGBTQ, whereas the church they perceive is not. And those are, those are difficult things to reconcile and the, um, the only way to, I, I mean, the social issues are a different ball of wax because that deals, you're moving into the doctrinal realm, right? When you deal with LGBTQ and how that would, if the church were to come out and accept, you know, this tomorrow, that would obviously conflict mightily with the proclamation of the family. But the historical issues, I agree with you, are easy to fix if you have the right people to fix them. I've been asked before, you know, if it's true, Matt, that that Peterson, Packer, and Benson had views of church history and Kimball and McConkie had different views of church history? Why is it that that Packer, Benson, and Peterson, why is it their version has sort of won the day? And the answer is really quite simple. Kimball and and McConkie too, they didn't make this a priority in their ministry. I mean, President Kimball When these discussions really emerged in the 1970s, he was he was worried about proselytizing the world. He was worried about missionary work, how Mm -hmm. these you know pesky historians doing what they do. That that just wasn't high on his list. And he had great affection for Leonard Arrington, the church historian. In fact, Kimball told him one time, he said, He said, Leonard or Brother Arrington, the Lord is pleased with your work. And that, of course, was was very affirming for Leonard Arrington because he had come under withering assault from Benson, Peterson and Packer for some of the work that his um, office was turning out. They thought it was too secular, too materialistic. It wasn't faith promoting. And anyway, so President Kimball, the church president to say that to this historian was faith affirming. But the problem is, is that Leonard Arrington got fired and they, they basically shut down the church historian's office having a PhD run it. And they moved him to BYU because uh, President Kimball believed he allowed this to happen. Because if he didn't reassign Leonard, um, the fear was, of course, President Benson would have shut him down and fired him altogether without Mm. a job. So he basically got let go. I guess the, the official word is reassigned, but let's call it for what it is. He got let go and he got moved to BYU away from the prying eyes of some apostles who didn't like what he was doing. And Elder McConkie was the same way, he had other things that were higher priority to him, and so neither he nor President Kimmel felt that they wanted to expend energy fighting against the three apostles who thought that history should be faith-promoting. I think, um, let me say a word about Elder Holland, we were talking about him a minute ago, that when um, Bushman wrote his book, Rough Stone Rolling, It was assumed that because it was written by a major university, it wasn't university, it was written by a major commercial press, Alfred Knopf, um, it was assumed that he would have to tell a story that would be much, much different than most Latter-day Saints were accustomed to, right? You know, Joseph Smith's father drinking alcohol, the prophet and his gold digging, polyandry, all of these things. And this 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 is what the historical record reveals, right? And anyway... Um, so Elder Holland read his book and he wrote him something really interesting. This is from Leonard Arrington's or Richard Bushman's diary, February 6, 2006. This is what, um, Holland wrote to Richard Bushman. You and I knew and everybody else knew that you would have to deal with things as honestly and forthrightly as you could. Nevertheless, your faith and loyalty are apparent on every page. And um, Bushman was really happy about that statement because Elder Holland had recognized that, that he had to tell an honest history and that he couldn't leave out, you know, Joseph Smith Sr.'s drinking or the polyandry. That would be a dishonest history if he were to do that. And obviously you know, it it could lead people to the wrong conclusions, right? Because one of the things that we know about Joseph Smith Sr. is that he was, he had revelations himself. He was a revelatory guy. He had dreams, right? And you Mm -hmm. can imagine how some people might view the drinking, right? Oh, sure. Of course he has dreams. He's drinking. Of course he's, he's having
0: hallucinations, right? Yeah.
2: Exactly. And that's just, obviously, as Elder Packer put it, some things that are true aren't very useful. That would be an instance of that.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. But as
2: a biographer, if I were critiquing Bushman's book and he didn't put that in there, I would have dinged him for it. Mm-hmm. I would have said, where is this? This needs to be in there. And I'll tell you why. It's not because you're bringing up dirt on somebody. That's not it at all. It's, it's, it, it needs to be in there because it's part of the prophet's uh, experience growing up. It's part of living in a home of a father who was drinking heavily. But also it's important. I'm not justifying this. But it's also important that... Uh, there was a, a major, major economic recession during the formative years of Joseph Smith's life. And there were people in upstate New York losing their farms all over the place, including the Smith family. Gee, wonder why dad would drink a little bit. He was he was depressed, right? Sure, sure. And there's a way to explain that where I think that, that people can understand it. They may not agree with it, but that's what he did. He turned to the bottle, right, to make, mm-hmm. make sense of some of this stuff. And and also, too, it's important to know that there wasn't a word of wisdom. There wasn't a health code at this time. Right. Sure.
0: And even it's, when it was instituted back then, it was a recommendation, not a not a commandment. That,
2: that's 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 another one that that some of the brethren, you know, that we're talking about transparency. Um, I'm reminded of something that Desert Book published in the 1970s that raised a lot of hackles at church headquarters from Elder Packer, Peterson and and Benson. And it was, uh, it was a, a book of letters. I think it was called uh, Letters to Bring Young Sons. And anyway, it was published by Desert Book. And it was d- just letters they had discovered in the church archives that that were in a big, several boxes that nobody knew was there until Leonard Arrington became the church historian and discovered them. But anyway, um, in this book that Desert Book published, there were two things that these three apostles took umbrage at. And one was that That when Brigham Young um, uh, sailed across the Atlantic and arrived in England, the first thing he did was open up a bottle of wine and drank it, right? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that some of the three apostles didn't like in the book was that when Young died in 1877, his descendants squabbled over his his estate.
0: They were fighting like cats and dogs over who got what. You mean like every every estate ever in the history of the world.
2: <laughs> see, see, You and I see it that way, Josh. And I think right. I, I dare say most people would see it that way. And, you know, it's obviously that's not faith promoting, but it's not faith discouraging either. It's just like, they're just people who have right. differences over their father's will. And the drinking thing, I think, is that you know, like you said, the word of wisdom, they were just, they were, it was just counsel to follow. I would, if I were giving a, you know, talking to Latter-day Saints about this, that Brigham Young and his son got drunk or drank, I think, I want to say drunk. That's how I remember it. They did drink a lot. But anyway, they had some uh, wine when they got across the Atlantic. It was a safe passage and it was a long passage. And so they celebrated with wine. I would simply say that um, the Word of Wisdom did not become what it is today until around World War I, where it became mm-hmm. a litmus test for temple orthodoxy, that mm-hmm. you cannot have a temple recommend unless you're abstaining from coffee, tea, alcohol, and tobacco. Brigham Young was not violating any sacrosanct rule at that time. Mm-hmm. And because the Word of Wisdom, we, we tend to think that it's always been this way. But that's one of the utilities of writing church history is that you help people to understand how the church changes, both culturally, doctrinally, politically.
0: Well, and that's what's interesting about that in particular, is that if you read the Doctrine and Covenants, it's right in there, by not by way of commandment, by word of wisdom. I mean, you know, so it, it makes more sense to read it the way of not being a commandment back then. But you know, it, this is the thing uh, that, I've, that I find it, that is somewhat of a struggle for me is that I can understand, like I do this myself, right? I mean, when there's a question where you can use it, um, like I just had a, another podcast with a couple of friends we were talking about. Someone wrote in a question about faith and it was a faith crisis question, just three members of the church talking about their different perspectives. One was a uh, an institute teacher, uh, my friend Tim Wild, and the other one was a worked and worked for the church and talking about these things I said I was like you know every one of these questions you can really you either choose to fa- have faith or you choose to doubt I mean you have to right I mean we're doing that in every single thing you can all of these things it's not about the evidence it's about how you feel about it what I think is a struggle for me is when members of the church and and the, and I'm getting this from what you're saying is, When there's like, kind of seems to be this unwritten defend at all costs, even the indefensible. So that's the, that's a struggle I have, right. Is that when you have these people who are just like, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. um, You know what it is. I'm just going to always believe uh, everything was supposed to be the way it was. It's just a. You know, I I think that there's some critical thinking that needs to be done there. And I think that that's what this academic, you know, research and these these academic books do.
2: Yeah, I, I, um, you know, I'm not under any um, pretense that that somehow I'm going to write my book and that my academic book and that people are going to read it in growth, because I think there's a lot of there's, there's a truism that we as humans, we don't like to have our sacred cows you know, uh, challenged or we, we like the narrative that we've created for ourselves because we've learned it and heard it for so long. And the challenge for academic historians, Josh, is like myself and, and Patrick, too. He talked about, you know, some of his ward members coming to his um, university classes and sitting in and having, you know, like, whoa, you know, um, right. they're just hearing things they've never heard before. And they're hearing it in a language that they've never heard before. You know, an academic language, as opposed to, say, gospel doctrine language. And I think that our task is to get um, Latter-day Saints, who don't typically read scholarship, to see why it's important, and to see how it can benefit them as a member. I, I just, you know, I, 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 I'm proud that my mother one time taught a lesson years back from one of my books. She said, oh, I, I brought in some insights from your book today, and, and gospel doctrine. And of course they came up to me afterwards. Oh, that was interesting. Where did you get that from? You know? And of course my mother being the proud mother, you oh, know, it's my son, you know, yeah. so that was, that was kind of cute, but, but I've heard people say that, that, you know, thank you for writing this book. It's, it's increased my testimony. It's, um, that's not what I do. I don't try to increase anyone's testimony or tear it down, but I've had plenty of people read my Benson book, for example, you know, I uh, had a bishop in Kansas, had a general authority write me had um, uh, institute person write me recently. And and then three emails are all the same, which was, um, thank you for giving me insights I didn't know existed. It only increased my faith and leaders in the church. I know they're human. I know they make mistakes. And I appreciate that, that you could write about these things in a very sensitive way. And And, and I thought, man, that makes me happy. And, mm-hmm. and I think that they were writing, they're, they I didn't know the, I don't know these people there. Those are three different people that reached out to me on their own accord just to thank me for my work. And it made me happy because a, they found it useful. And B, they probably don't read scholarship a lot. Mm-hmm. And I did it. I did some podcasts. I think they came across my book from the podcast. It's not because they follow, you know, university right. book catalogs.
0: <laughs> right.
2: And so anyway, they, so there was some utility there. Um, I guess I'm just I'm just old school. I think that that truth and transparency always always serve people, and I've seen so many counterexamples examples when um, the church hasn't been as transparent as it needs to be about a topic. And like you said, Josh, they go on the internet and they find it, and they're just all of a sudden disturbed by it. And in my view, it's an unforced error. It doesn't have yeah. to be that way. Sure. You know? we, we I just we just talked about three examples about mental health, about cussing, about the third one I gave about, you know, those are e- race. Those are easy to explain to people because it really lets you know that these are people that you can relate to, that they've walked a maybe a similar path that you've walked in terms of hardship.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's, I, and that's what I think is so important, right, is the whole purpose of my podcast is to show, you know, I have a variety of different people on and a variety of different topics. I've had members of the church who are transgender, gay, gay. <laughs> you know, different, different things like that. And and them just sharing their stories. And my whole purpose in that is to have my diverse group of listeners understand that everybody's having a very real human experience. And I appreciated that Jeffrey R. Holland shed a little bit of light on his very human experience. And it's, uh, it's refreshing for someone like me, who I've got struggles, some small, some very not small that like, you know, that I think we all have our things that make us feel less than. Nobody's perfect. And it's great to hear that even the people that you view, you idolize, you look at as the pinnacle of morality still struggle. And that's what I've appreciated about your books in reading this, the, you know, both the Benson book, but especially the Race of the Presa book, just because that one highlighted so many different people within the church so many different apostles and showing each one of them had their own their own human issues that they were dealing with and all that came together to lead us to a place where something miraculous like that something significant like that could happen and i just appreciate that and that's what i think you know i i love having you and patrick and different people on to share the real story (laughs) So that we can understand that, yes, these are real people. They're not characters in a book somewhere. you know that that's another thing is I, I think that sometimes I try I try to remind everybody when they talk about these things. If you look at the Bible realistically, all of those prophets had problems too. We don't know them super detailed like we do now because they're not as far close in time. but I was like, have you read the Old Testament? I mean, you know, like some of those guys had, some real issues, you know? (laughs) And, 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 uh, and so it just reminds me of our own humanity, you know? And, and I think that that's great. I think it's important. Well, well, Matthew, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk to me and my listeners about this. Patrick, too, even though he he bailed out early, he was scared of this part of it, you know, so no, I'm just joking. But um, but we'll definitely, I'm sure we'll have you back. When your book comes out, I'll be one of the first ones to buy it. We'll have you on and talk about it again, of course. Always appreciate, appreciate you coming on.
2: Thanks, Josh. I enjoyed uh, talking to you today. All right. We'll see you.